Thank you all for being here today. I'm a little intimidated. Usually I just get to cruise. They have to do all the heavy lifting, and I just get to ask questions and be a devil's advocate and stuff like that. But they gave me an assignment today, so I have to, I have to measure it up. Today I have, I have two questions that I want you to think about. The first question is, does the Spirit of God still speak today? Does the Spirit of God still peak, speak to believers today? And the second question is, who was Montanus? Not Montana, but Montanus. Those two might seem to be totally unrelated questions, but that's my assignment is to make those connected. Let me talk a little bit about the first question today. Does the Spirit of God still speak today? By Spirit of God, I mean the Holy Spirit. God has the Holy Spirit, or God. And I think the spectrum of answers to that runs on one end, which is the one I'm familiar with in my tradition, uh, nope, it's all right here in the box, my new King James Version. Well, technically he still speaks because I can still read the scriptures, but that's it. He's done. The other end of the spectrum goes something like, of course he does, and that's why I'm starting a new church down the road. Come join me. The truth lies somewhere in between those two, I think. But it's helpful to think about this as a spectrum rather than as a specific yes or no. Because trying to get a specific answer almost automatically runs you to one extreme or the other. And there are dangers in both of those extremes. So those are the two questions. How would you answer that question? What happens when somebody, one of your acquaintances, one of your dear friends says, I think God told me that you can fill in the blank. Right? I'm going to have twins, or I need to buy a new car, or it's time to change careers, or something bigger or heavier than that. That's when this question comes to rest with all of us, and we have to figure out what we actually believe. But to answer that question, I want to go back in history to, to the guy named Montanus. Historically speaking, we're somewhere at the end of the second century, sometime between the year 150 and 200 A.D. Rome still runs the world, at least the Western world. The church is a thing. Paul has already done his thing. The church is organizing itself under bishops who have the authority in different regions. And the church is in the process of putting together what we call the canon, the writings that will become its foundation for faith. But somewhere in that end of the second century, a person arises, Montanus, who claims to have a new prophecy from God, who claims that the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. What we know for sure about Montanus is that there was a guy named Montanus. That, that's it. Um, all we know about what he believed comes from the people who are writing to tell us that he was wrong, totally wrong, about everything. And so the sources we have aren't what we would like to have, totally unbiased, objective, scientific, historicist accounts. But that's what we have to work with. 
Montanism, that idea that he sponsored and that flourished after him, was really popular for a while. It began in Asia Minor, think, think uh, central, north-central Turkey today. It spread throughout that region, but it spread to the west, to the area called Gaul, now France. It spread into the Syrian church in the east. It even crossed over to North Africa and influenced the North African church. One of its uh, adherents, actually, was one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, who near the end of his life wrote a defense of, Mont uh, of Montanus' ideas in seven books. It would be interesting to read those from Tertullian, but they didn't survive. So we don't know how he would have defended it. The point of that is to say this was really influential. It was a big deal. It had to do with something fundamental to Christian faith, which is how God inspires, how God speaks to His people on earth. Here's what we know or can put together about Montanus. He claimed to be taken over by the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit struck him, it was an ecstatic kind of an experience. He lost control of himself. He lost, it, lost his identity. He would speak in the first person as God. He claimed that um, his vocal cords became an instrument played by the Spirit of the Lord. His body was merely an instrument through which God would speak. We might think that's strange. It would not have been particularly strange in the ancient world. One of the most famous prophets in the classical world was the prophet or prophetess at Delphi. And ecstatic utterances were part of her program, they would burn um, herbs, certain herbs, inhale the fumes. The, the god, so to speak, would take them over, and they would rant, and people would try to catch what they said, and then try to make sense of it. One of the more famous uh, prophets in the ancient world, the, the Sibyl, an oracle at Cumai, was also a prophetess of Apollo. And typically what she would do is that she would write down what she received from the prophet, a word or a phrase on a bay leaf. Then she would collect all the bay leaves, say a prayer, throw them into the wind, and then you got to pick them up and put them together. Kind of like found poetry. <laughs> so that kind of, of prophecy, that kind of ecstatic utterance was not unusual in the ancient world. It wasn't unusual in Christianity, sort of. We have that strange occurrence at Pentecost where these uneducated Galileans all of a sudden speak all the languages of the known world. That's not normal. But what seems to be different about Montanus was the fact that he lost control of himself and he uttered as if he were the instrument of God. He was famously followed by two priestesses named Priscilla and Maxilla who left their husbands, left their marriages, and followed him. They took a vow of celibacy. And in fact, one of the things that Montanus and his believers believed in was extreme celibacy. If you were married, you ceased to have relations with your spouse. It was a very ascetic way of life. They advocated fasting. Now, that wasn't unusual. The church at that time generally fasted voluntarily on Wednesdays and Fridays. 
Most Christians did that voluntarily. For Montanus and his followers, those were mandatory fasts, and they lasted until nightfall every day. They also had a very strict moral code. They were big on John's gospel, as you might imagine, which makes much of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. But the big question that the church had to wrestle with was, what do we do when people say God has spoken to them? We believe that God has spoken in the past to His prophets. But how do we test the prophets? Remember, too, that this is in the age when they are putting together the canons. It's not so simple as we might think it would be to simply pick up the Bible and check for lots of different reasons. They could pick up the Scriptures, but there was still some room for claiming that this or that was inspired writing, which opens a space for Montanus to claim that what he utters, his, quote, new prophecy, is also valid. This might be the best way to understand his program. This doesn't come from Montanus. It comes from those who claim to be telling us what he believed. But it went something like this. Just like Jesus took the place of the Father when He was incarnated. The age of the Father was succeeded by the age of the Son. So now, Montanus argued, the age of the Spirit has replaced the age of the Son. It's logical. You can make sense of it. But is that, is that the truth? It arose at the end of the second century. It flourished for a couple of hundred years. In different places, it was stronger than in other places. Some think that the church in France was founded by followers of Montanus. They called it Gaul. It certainly affected the North African church. And it wasn't finally quashed until the 5th century, until the 400s, sometime after Constantine. And towards the end of that period, the church, when it found Montanists, treated them as pagans. And they had a rehab plan. They would, they would take them into the church. They would teach them as catechumens. And after a period of teaching and reflection, they would then baptize them or rebaptize them into the one true faith. So the church came to believe that this was outside of Christianity, even though it claimed to be on a fast track inside of Christianity. So who cares? Why should we care? That trend that originates with Montanus, the idea that God still speaks and that being the prophet of God gives one special authority to speak on behalf of God, that the Holy Spirit can give somebody authority equal to or superior to church teaching and church tradition keeps coming back in Christianity. It didn't die once and for all with Montanus. <coughs> and we still see it today. For example, I don't know much about this, but in the Protestant Reformation, most of us are familiar with Luther, who was a big text guy. 
But there were some in the Protestant Reformation that did not want to put God in a box that we call Scripture. Luther didn't like them. Um, I don't know if, they, if there was a particular sect that had a name. They were spiritualists. Um, Luther called them, uh, only had nasty things to say about them. He used, I think he called them, um, I've read that he called them schwärmer, which means, it's the word you use for a bunch of rats or, or vermin. He, he had no use for them. In the 18th century, there was a guy named Emanuel Swedenborg who claimed that because he had received dreams and visions from the Holy Spirit, he could now interpret the Bible and the Holy Scriptures in a better way. That understanding the Bible depends on having special inspiration. Um, Johnny Appleseed, you've heard of Johnny Appleseed, was apparently a Swedenborgian missionary. Helen Keller liked those ideas. Um, I don't know a lot about it other than I used to walk down a street in London and there was a storefront that advertised lectures on Swedenborg every Saturday night for free. So it's still kind of a thing. No, there's too many other things for me to do in London. So. <laughs> like a Shakespeare play. Or... But now I have to. Now I have to go. So much theater, so little Yep, that's true. that's true. Now, this might really strike home. Another version of that that we might be familiar with, at least at third hand, is Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. That's a, a classic example in an American context that's not that far back in the past um, that we know a lot about historically, but that illustrates that general trend. The idea that God still speaks, and that when God speaks to some people, He gives them an authority that's superior to what the church has traditionally taught and believed. For Joseph Smith, it's a whole other set of Holy Scriptures called the Book of Mormon. It's a whole other theology of who we are, how God works. It's a different theology of who Christ is and what He did. Set in a very American context. But that's another example of what can happen when somebody receives what they think is the Word from God. It creates problems when what they receive contradicts or conflicts with what the church has always believed. More recently, you have the rise of early 20th century Pentecostalism, starting about the turn of the century at Azusa Street. Or more recently, when I was growing up, what we called Neo-Pentecostalism in the 1970s. Uh, or we used to call it the Charismatic Movement, from the Greek term charism, which means something like gift or spiritual gift. More recently, something called the Word of Faith Movement. I don't know anything about that, except that I found a reference to that. But I do know because I live in Nashville, where there are 1,100 churches in Davidson County, that it's no big deal for somebody to believe that they've been led by the Spirit to do something other than the norm. That's the town we live in. Now, that's the big question. Does God still speak? And what do we do when somebody says, God has laid it on my heart to say? How do we decide? On the one hand, most of us, I think, especially at Otter Creek, are uncomfortable a little bit in saying that God can't do that anymore. 
we're uncomfortable saying that the Holy Spirit is unemployed. Yeah. We, we believe that He's still active. But if we believe He's active, is He active only in the black and red letters in our Bible? Which is a very static state of being. If we believe that this Holy Spirit is a thing, and is dynamic, and does work and act, is He mute? Or does He still speak? And if He speaks, what does it look like? What does it feel like? How do we test the spirits? When we get to the point where somebody says, no, I believe something different about church. And we need to start a new church. Is that revivalism? Or is that moving a step ahead of where everybody else is? Is it going back to the true faith? Or is it stepping outside the true faith? And those are big questions for us. Especially in a city like Nashville. So, how do we decide? How do we discern? The process for determining whether something is from God or not hasn't really changed. When Montanus made his claims, the test they used, the reason they decided not to give him any credence, had a lot to do with what the accepted scripture said. Does it conform to what the apostles taught us? Does it match the gospel lesson? Does it unify the church and make us all better? Or does it divide the church? Does it divide the church into those who have the gift, who are superior because of the gift, and demote those who don't have the gift as inferior? Those kinds of tests are the tests the church has used and still uses today. Um, Way you frame this, that the kind of early forms of what we call Montanism were ecstatic, and so, but the the point wasn't the ecstasy; it was the ecstatic experience. It was the Holy Spirit is giving me the authority to. So today, the experience, or maybe more popular version, is not going to be ecstatic. It'll be some, but it'll still be a claim about the Holy Spirit's point. I feel this in my heart. I feel the Spirit putting on my heart that. It's, so it's still a shift to finding authority and experience of the Spirit. In the past it was ecstatic, now it's, it's kind of internal sense. Well, I think there's still ecstatic versions of Pentecostal today. But I think the one that cuts closest to home for most of us yeah, that's would be that, that kinder, gentler, quieter kind of, of inspiration. Um, I know I encounter it all the time with my students. Um, I think God has led me to, to youth ministry as my major. And I'm not making fun of them, but that's a version of, of how it feels. Now, something as small and individual as that, I'm not thinking heresy. That's not dividing the church. When it grows, however, and somebody claims that their authority supersedes the authority of Scripture or the church as a whole, that's when we have something we might call a heresy. Um, a guy named Roger Olson wrote an article for Christianity Today. He's an evangelical scholar that Josh put me on to me. 
And he says, here's, here's a kind of a test. When somebody makes a claim that the Holy Spirit has given them a new prophecy, here's his test. Question number one. Does it promote Christ? Or does it promote the messenger? If it doesn't promote Christ, that's a problem. If it does promote Christ, then, then maybe it is from the Spirit. Second test is the apostolic norm. Does it match what the apostles, those who knew Christ firsthand, does it match what they taught? Is it consistent nowadays with Scripture? If it is consistent with Scripture, then maybe it is from the Holy Spirit. If it's not, that's going to be a problem. Third test is the, the unity test. Does this new word from God promote unity of the body? Or does it divide the body into the true believers and those who just refuse to listen? Is it unifying or is it schismatic? A fourth test. Does it make sense? Is it rational? In other words, maybe that's the wrong word. Does it require, if it requires me to turn off my brain and just accept some things, that might be a problem. If it makes sense, however, then it might be from the Holy Spirit. Last but not least, does it exalt Jesus as the Messiah? the chosen one of God? Or does it suggest there might be a new Messiah? A successor to Christ? Most of us would recognize that as a problem. That's kind of the final test. These tests, he says, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you go to the doctor or, or when you see the advertisements on TV, right? Here's a test for colon cancer. P.S. There are some false, false positives and some false negatives, so it's not 100% right all the time. It's kind of like one of those kind of tests. But the answer to all these is yes, it promotes Christ. It seems to conform to what the apostles have told us. It's designed to build up the church, not divide the church. It makes sense. And it doesn't try to replace Jesus as the Messiah. If the answer to all those is yes, then maybe it is a word from God. But if the answer to any of these is no, then it, it should give us pause to stop and think. Let me stop there, because I'm not an expert on this. There's no point in me babbling on to fill time. What kind of questions does this raise for you, talking about the Holy Spirit in this way? How would you answer that question, like right off the cuff, as a gut reaction? So does God still speak to people today? How would you, what would your gut reaction be? You don't have to raise your hand, but that's just the way to think. John 16, 7, where Jesus has talked about how he has to go so that otherwise the advocate can't come, he talks a lot about, especially number one, how the, the, the advocate will lead us to Christ and will lead us to the truth. You can, you can see how that can be used to say, well, Jesus came and did his job. Now that he's done his work, the Holy Spirit has replaced him on earth. It, it can lead to that particular version of Montanus' doctrine. I think it's fascinating to me how much Jesus violates everything you just said. So, yeah, so explain that. Well, if I'm living 
in that time frame, there's heresy all over this, you know. Uh, you come, you know, if you don't hate your parents when you hate me, you're not worthy of this. I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. All of these wonderful paradoxes that he's speaking of break a lot of this. Oh yeah, to claim to be the son of God. Oh my gosh, yeah. And the thing is, is I've always struggled with, you know, people make it sound so easy. Why don't you accept Jesus? Well, try living there where you're not supposed to break the Torah. And he's talking about breaking the Torah. And then he comes in and says, well, you know, nothing from the Torah will be dismissed. I will fulfill it. It's not easy what he's saying. He's going against 4,000 years, 4,000 years of theology when he shows up on this. And it's, it's rough. It is complicated. That's why Paul has to write so many letters explaining to Jewish, Jewish God followers how the Messiah is not bringing a new religion. He's fulfilling the old religion. But fulfillment sometimes looks like replacement. And I, I think that it is complex at a certain level for those who have been raised to think one way. Now, the argument... The question would be, it happened once for sure. And that's what the church teaches. Christ's coming to us is the once and once for all time fulfillment of the prophecy. That doesn't stop people from claiming to be the second, the third, or the fourth. Yeah. The, the expression I was thinking of, Matt, was in John, towards the end of John, where it talks about the miracles being confirmation of belief. And the aspect of the, of the Holy Spirit to confirm through miraculous ways those tests, if you will. So that, yes, that's what Jesus was doing is very different, but there was also the miracles to confirm that that, that, is, from, that is from God. And I think even in the church, that brings to Jesus' confirmation of, of the power of, of belief in the Holy Spirit. And so... So with that being historical, I'm all, my, I guess my question is also, where people also uh, talk about the Holy Spirit, not in that Jesus wants me to change careers, but when you're on the, the kind of the edge of the kingdom, the Spirit in miraculous ways proving the Word uh, in conversions, particularly you know as people talk about mission in the global south and other aspects of the world where the expression of the Holy Spirit in miraculous ways seems to be more evident, particularly in situations where it's combating, um, you know, they're not within a Christian context there. It's the expansion of the kingdom. Well, I mean, the point you bring up about signs and miracles that confirmed, certainly in the New Testament, the veracity of what Paul and Peter and the apostles were saying, was also used against Montanus. I, I can never decide how to say his name. It just doesn't really matter, but Montanus. I like Montanus better. How do y'all say it? And we'll go with Montanus. One of the problems with Montanus in his own day and time was that he made predictions about the future that just didn't quite ever come to pass. He taught, for example, that when Christ came again, it wouldn't be to the old Jerusalem. It would be to this place really close to his hometown. Uh, actually, it wasn't even a place anymore then called Pepuza. It had been, it had been an ancient settlement that would, had been destroyed. But he taught that that's where God was coming. He also taught, not unlike some early Christians, that God is coming back soon. 
and that therefore we should all gather in this place and await the second coming because it's coming. It didn't exactly happen. That's one of the things that made the church think this may not be from God. He's making claims about the future that don't hold water. He's making claims about marriage that don't hold water in light of what the church has taught about marriage. He's binding onto believers beliefs that the apostles didn't bind onto believers. He's bringing something else, adding it to the church, dividing the church, contesting the authority of the bishops at the time. In other words, he says, I don't care what you say or what the Bible says, the Holy Spirit has told me that this is what the truth is going to be. That was the real issue for Montanus. And it was very seductive, apparently. A lot of people, for a couple of hundred years, bought into it. So, I'm going to try to not get thrown out. <coughs> okay. Um, and I don't know a lot about Montanus, right? But when I hear you kind of describe the framework of what he went through, he had an experience. That experience gave him authority. Um, that sounds a lot like Paul. Um, and so when we look at Paul, Paul kind of like checks these boxes until you start getting into like social norm and how that evolves over time and unity starts to have trouble. So there are a lot of things that Paul says that may or may not promote unity. Yep, Paul. Yeah. And so my question is, how, how do you handle that? That's a, that's a really good parallel, I think, to look at Paul and Montanus as, as two figures. Because Paul, as we know, also created a ruckus. Yeah. And also... Not unifying. Not unifying. Now, the difference with Paul, I think, and y'all can jump in, is that Paul, to a certain extent, went out of his way to align himself with the apostles. One of his experiences is the experience of Christ himself, which humbles Paul. And Paul leaves and studies for a decade before he turns into the Paul that, that we know and love or hate, or that everybody loves and hates. So, and so unity today, I guess that's the question. Like, how, how do we think about unity today? Think about Paul's message to the Corinthians, to the Romans especially, that's his whole thing is, you guys got to stay together. There are some false wolves out there. The difference in Paul is Paul's not saying, leave all that and follow me. Yeah. Paul is saying, don't be led astray. This is the gospel. I, the last of the gospels, the last of the apostles, I'm, I'm telling you, Peter can vouch for me. James can vouch for me. John can vouch for me. Philip can vouch for me. I'm teaching you what they taught me. Does that make sense? That's, that's a, a difference for Paul. All these criteria need to be understood within the larger kind of framework of what we learn about in the Scripture. So to claim Jesus Christ, you need to know kind of rule of faith, biblical understanding. That is, to say something's apostolic, same idea. Unity is not get as many people in as possible, uh, but kind of unity around Christ and around these essential things. And so Paul will say, these folks are out. So it's not... It's not uh, <coughs> Yeah, I think we just need to understand unity appropriately. Unity doesn't mean as many as possible. It's, I think, maybe what you're saying. It's not, it's not divisive based on this leader. Or, um... It's, it's, trying, to, yeah, it's trying to 
is trying to keep people together around the truth as opposed to leading to a new truth. Does that make sense? You were going to say something. I was just going to say that this whole, you're right, Paul was wackadoo in the, in the uh, eyes of the early church. And so when he takes all these radical ideas back to Jerusalem, to the powers that be and the elders, Acts 15, what they say is, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that he's doing a good thing. And, and I they, think they're and they tie them into the text. Exactly. They're doing all these things right here. But that's a really good point. I mean, it, it's difficult. There are always there have been historically challenges to the authority that the church um, to authority in the church. One form of that challenge represented by Montanism uh, or what we might call neo-Pentecostalism or Mormonism or it, it, it's, it will happen. And the challenge for Christians, believing Christians, Orthodox Christians, is to figure out how to discern. And the model we have for discernment, we talked about the Westminster Quadrilateral. Wesleyan Quadrilateral. It's a combination of scripture, uh, church practice, reason, and what's the other one? So experience tradition. Sorry, yeah. One of Joseph Smith's lieutenants, Sidney Rigmans, 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 People can misidentify you. Mormon, he added on, because of his emphasis to Mark 16, he says, he was waving the baptized, shall we say, he was disbelieving. He added, disbelieving, and is not baptized. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's interesting that the Consolidations uh, of the Mormons, the first congregation of Mormons, the very first church, was composed almost entirely of followers of Alexander Oh, really? We left Campbell and went to that church. And some years ago, I went up to BYU. I knew these people had diaries. So I went up to BYU and I called any part of his diaries because I wanted to see why they went. And they told me. And what they said was that Alex, they called him Alex. Alex Campbell offered us only cold, live rationality, a rational reading of the text that Joseph. Put us in touch with God Himself. That's what they say. So there's the appeal. And they they like Campbell, but it feels it feels more real. Well, to this point, something I was going to add I, is that I think one thing we, we could add to this process or this list. I mean, I'm not trying to. So we have to add it somewhere. Is how does this respect the discursive processes of the body of the collective body of believers? Because I think it can be really healthy to have something like a group of people within the body that press the boundaries of what's considered rationally acceptable or institutionally acceptable, as long as those people are also committed to the, the collective belonging to the body itself. It's, it's when those people no longer feel accountable to the wider body of believers that it can get kind of dangerous or it can be an offshoot or some sort of extremism or radical movement. But I think as long as you have uh, something like 
a commitment to each other. It can be good to have people that are really institutional and highly rational, and people that are that press the boundaries of that in ways that make some of us uncomfortable. And because what what struck me in this list is you have uh, does it respect Christ? Well, according to whom? I mean, you could have you know Joseph Campbell says this is true to who Christ is. And someone else is saying, well, look at the scriptures, you're not reading them correctly. So it gets really, some of this, it begs the question of um, who gets to decide what adheres to these norms. And so that's where there, there's a tension here. We have to live with them. And I think what one thing we lose track of is in a highly individualized culture, we think the Spirit speaks to each of us independently rather than recognizing that the Spirit works through the discursive processes of the body itself. So... If I think the Holy Spirit has told me something, but I go to wise people and they keep steering me somewhere else, that might be a sign that that wasn't the Holy Spirit talking to me. And the particular challenge, I think, if you remember our discussion about modernism and postmodernism, on the, on the postmodern side, you know, one of our mantras today is, well, everybody has their own truth. You know, whatever works for me or works for you. I mean, that can lead this way because... The only thing I have to respect is me. Now, self-respect is a good thing, up to a point. But that's that's another issue that I think opens a space in our culture for something like Montanism, whatever you want to call it, to, to take advantage of. Well, Lauren, I like that you mentioned that, because one thing I was going to mention that kind of always, I mean, is a difficulty for me, is looking at a list like this and saying, well... Doesn't this effectively feel like we're still saying the Holy Spirit only works through Scripture? Because we're kind of using that as a litmus of like, if you think the Holy Spirit's telling you something, but it doesn't align with Scripture, it must not actually be the Holy Spirit. Um, and it can kind of feel like this double-edged sword of like wanting to say that, like, of course the Spirit's moving, but also the Spirit only says what the Bible already says. So like, if anything, it's just kind of pointing you back to the Bible. And well, well, and go ahead. I, I do think, want to say something. And that can be a difficult thing to like part out. So. Yeah, I think what's really important is that the problem there is that we think we have finally understood Scripture. Yeah. We don't think that we could possibly learn something else. So I think that's where we need leaders that say, we still have room to grow and learn. That Scripture, new light can be shed on Scripture by the Spirit, perhaps calling members of our own body to come show us something. But it has to be tested in the body. It can't just be, oh, now we have a new Joseph Smith. You know, now let's go forward. It also raises the interesting point that, that Christianity, like Judaism before it, are text-based. That the Word of God is enshrined in Scripture and is preserved in Scripture. It's carefully discerned before being admitted as Scripture. But then it becomes our test. And so that is... That is a thing about Christianity and Judaism. It, it wasn't true in the ancient Greek world. They didn't have a Bible. They had a lot of poems. They had lots of versions of lots of myths. But, but it wasn't fixed the way, belief wasn't fixed the way Judaism and then Christianity fixed faith. That is different. Again, remember, this test is only a maybe test. Right? This, is not a, this is not scientific. This is just what Olson suggests as a way of approaching it. So I want to ask Lauren, would you expect, my, I operate under the assumption that 
oh, the Spirit might speak in new ways and shape us. It's not going to do so in a way that contradicts this special revelation scripture. It might contradict our misinterpretation, but we would expect that, that yeah. how the Spirit speaks is going to be... So, for, for example, think about the issue of slavery we talked about if you were with us last semester. Um, there are plenty of people who are reading Scripture and saying, Scripture says slavery is of God. And then there are people who are people of prayer, who are people of justice, who are saying, that can't be. That's impossible that the Spirit of God would move us towards uh, enslaving our fellow believers. So, what do we do here? Well, if this is where the stuff you see how there's a need to hold some of this stuff as maybe we haven't finally understood everything about Christ or everything about the apostolic teaching. But we now see, oh, it's obvious that doesn't contradict those things. That's why I think we just have to say this has to be discursive and in process and ongoing prayer, ongoing renegotiation, ongoing return to our... keep returning to Scripture, too. It's not, not yes. to just put a straitjacket, but as an God's words as now. And I think what I am frustrated by is the move that's, that doesn't return to Scripture. It's the Spirit speaks to me. And I go wherever that leads, yes. rather than is this? Can we make sense of this in light of how Scripture Absolutely. or how the Spirit is spoken? Absolutely. I used up all your time. Can I just say? I think what Lauren is saying too. Understanding. I mean, orthodoxy is important, and you guys have been working at that all year. But there's a danger that orthodox it gets cast in stone. Maybe it's not quite right. And so it, it, it was kind of rethinking it. But that's the genius of our movement. That's what we were all about. And it's also worth just mentioning as the last word. There's a difference between saying, if Richard says, you know, I think the Holy Spirit moved me to give 40 bucks to the guy selling the contributor on the street yesterday. As opposed to, God told me to start a new church and we're all going to fast four days a week. Does that make sense? There's a difference there. On the, in that first example, we should be open to the Spirit active and working in our lives. What he encouraged Richard to do was what Scripture encourages us to do. Take care of the poor. Be generous. Be compassionate. There's no conflict. That test works really good, but it's not that big a deal. Whereas some other issues which threaten the church, which threaten the authority in the church, that's where bigger problems arise. I don't want to wish, I can't keep you because some of you have kids, I think. But. I was going to say, just one danger too is when I when I tell you, Spirit told me to tell you you need to do this too. Oh, I